Morning church, my name is Josh Hunt, and today's teaching text is from Genesis 3, 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that thank you that you love us enough to reach out to us and to speak to us and to involve us in your story, Lord. God, I ask that this morning you give us not only ears to hear, but that you give us the humility and the patience to learn, um, to learn what it is you have to say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey friends, the mission of our church is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And while this language is, you know, particular to us, the sentiment behind it is just completely unoriginal. I was emailing with a guy who's new to our church this week, and he asked me the question, what makes your church different? And I responded, in part, I think it's that we're not putting all of our time and energy into making sure that our church is different than any other church in town. It's not like we're competing with other people in the market and we really need to differentiate ourselves. I said to him, Cornerstone is ultimately not up to anything new. In fact, we're actually just up to something really old. The mission of our local church, the stuff that we're trying to do together, is consistent with the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ throughout generations, for the last two millennia. And all throughout church history, we have these amazing examples of women and men who have risked it all for the sake of this mission. And we do really well to learn their stories. There's a story of a church leader by the name of Polycarp, who in the year 155 AD uh, was sought out by the Romans and arrested. Now, Roman policy at the time was typically not to go hunting down the Christians, but if there was a sense that they were actively seeking converts and thus threatening Roman status quo, they should be pursued. Well, Polycarp gets the warning that uh, a warrant's out for his arrest and the Romans are making their way for him. So instead of running, he patiently waits uh, their, their arrest. They, he patiently waits for them to come and pick him up. And they pick him up and they take him before this proconsul who's publicly pressuring this, this old church leader to recant his faith in Jesus Christ and worship the emperor. And Polycarp was getting up in years, and, and the proconsul was saying, look, be reasonable here. You know, consider your health, consider your age. If you'll just worship the emperor and recant your faith, we'll let you go free. Well, Polycarp is obstinate and will not bend. And the proconsul is annoyed and agitated and offended by his stubbornness and continues to publicly pressure him before a great crowd to recant his faith. If he'll just swear by the emperor and, and refuse Christ, he can go free. Well, Polycarp replies famously, he says, For 86 years I have served Jesus, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? 
Polycarp was taken by force and he was tied to a stake in the middle of a pile of wood. And as they lit the flames, Polycarp looked up to heaven and he prayed, Sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that together with your martyrs around the throne, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. And then he gave his life, burned at the stake as a witness for Jesus Christ, a martyr. In the most public and torturous of ways, when others might have appealed to reason or his age or his health as an excuse to recant, when some people might say, oh, but you know, surely God knows your heart. He knows you really love him. Polycarp lived what he believed, maintaining his confession even to the point of death and joining the glorious company of the martyrs around the throne. And I'm sometimes uncomfortable telling people I'm a pastor because I don't know how they're going to respond. How did Polycarp Polycarp prepare to be faithful in the face of suffering? And how can we prepare to be faithful, learning to be men and women of wisdom and courage when other people find the way of Jesus to be regressive, out of step, or even dangerous? Well, the answer, as we've been studying for the last number of weeks, is by learning to tread the ancient paths. As we've been talking about so far this year, the ancient paths represent a manner of being in the world that follows the faithful example of men and women throughout the ages who knew the heart of God, who sought the wisdom of God, who came to love the truth of God above all else. And they were willing to let this heart, this wisdom, this truth reshape and reform them. Resolving to be a person who walks down the ancient path means accepting difficulty and challenge as the, a normal part of life, the normal operative part of our formation. It even means being willing to suffer as a pilgrim sojourning down the ancient path. Now, last week, if you heard the message, I, I shared a foundational confession that one must make, one must accept if they intend to walk down the ancient path path. And it's quite simply that God is God and we are not. Because God created reality and encoded his meaning and purpose, his his ends into reality, the cosmos, and even into the human DNA, because God is the author of all of this, we recognize that we are utterly contingent beings. As Paul quoted some of the songwriters of of this first century, in him we live and move and have our being. Fearing God, coming to fear God by respecting, embracing, and ultimately loving this reality is the prerequisite for journeying down the ancient path. And today we're continuing in the book of Genesis, where we're actually going to be for a couple of months, uh, to find another key insight to aid us in our pilgrimage down the ancient path. Well, you know the story of Adam and Eve, and you've just heard uh, the teaching text for today. Creation started gloriously. The man and woman ruled over creation as God lovingly ruled over them. They did this in the absence of shame. Uh, They were naked with one another, ruling over creation in the absence of shame. There was unadulterated intimacy with one another. 
At the same time, they had unmediated access to God who would walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, Adam and Eve were instructed that they could eat from any tree in the garden to find their sustenance, including one that's called the tree of life. But there was one restriction that they were instructed to abide by. And the restriction was they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what's the deal with this tree? Um, I think we needn't worry too much about the nature of the tree itself, or was it a pear? Was it an apple? What was the nature of the fruit? I think the really important thing going on in Genesis chapter 3 is that if the man and the woman chose to eat from, from this tree against God's wishes, they would indeed know evil know what it is like to rebel. They would know sedition, whereas previously they only had this intimate knowledge of the good. It was, it was betraying the choice. It was betraying God's instruction itself that would bring this intimate knowledge of good and evil, whereas previously they had only known the good. Well, as Genesis chapter 3 begins, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, a ton of questions and comments arise surrounding this verse, but note well that the enemy's first tactic in throwing humanity off course was an undermining simple obedience to the word of God with the question, did God really say? The first tactic was undermining simple obedience with the question, did God really say? Now, I'm with many of you who are, are turned off by people who have this overconfident and sometimes judgmental air about them uh, toward those who think differently than they do about difficult and controversial topics in Scripture. The phrase, the Bible said it, I believe it, and that settles it, sometimes oversimplifies the complexities that are present in Scripture. In truth, I think that many of the people who've walked away from the faith are not primarily rejecting God as much as they're rejecting God's people, who at times can be mean and judgmental and haughty and shaming and rude. Or they're, they're rejecting evangelicalism at its worst, which at times can be really head-shakingly bad. And hurt by God's people, many people walk through a kind of deconstruction of their faith, which is not altogether negative. In fact, at times it can be really, really good. A pastor in Portland that I respect named John Mark Comer helpfully said, uh, there's a healthy part of deconstruction where the world has corrupted the church, and then people take the Bible to critique the worldliness of the church. That's a good kind of deconstruction. But now, many people are using the culture of the world to critique the Bible. They come to the Bible or to the way of Jesus with prior moral assumptions where they have redefined good and evil for themselves. And that's a different situation altogether. I want to readily admit, as a person who weekly studies Scripture with a view towards sharing it with others, the Bible can be exceptionally difficult at times to understand. Reading the Bible with a, like a broad mind, trying to keep the whole story and the whole ethic together at times can be quite challenging. 
We have textual questions. We have lots of valid questions about how to understand the Bible. Now, thank God, God gave us minds and he gave us the church through the ages. We can get a sense of how has the church, how have the people of God understood this scripture through two millennia? God thankfully has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can learn to read with understanding and call and encourage one another down the path of faithfulness. But I will say, there are many people today who appeal to the difficulty of understanding Scripture or appeal to the failures of the institutional church or evangelical culture as a way of protecting themselves against the moral responsibility of having to actually obey Scripture. Uh, sometimes with my kids, I'll walk into a room and, you know, parents, you can just kind of smell it. You know, well, not just like dirty diapers, a different kind of like smelling it. Uh, you just know somebody has hit somebody else. And like I sense the tension in the room, and, and sometimes I'll say to one of my kids, give me the most honest answer. Did you hit your sister? Did you hit your brother? And there are times where it may be appropriate to ask, give me the most honest answer. Is it that you don't understand Scripture? or that you understand it, but you don't like it and don't honestly want to obey it? What's the most honest answer? At times, a person's objections to the ethical demands of Scripture is natural. And by that, I mean it's aligned with our fleshly nature. But we're not called to live according to our base instincts, our first nature. We're invited and we're empowered by the, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to live by our redeemed nature. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Getting back in Genesis 3, we remember the serpent deceives Adam and Eve by undermining simple obedience. But in the end, they make their own choice. They choose for themselves how they're going to respond. As we've just read, the text says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for fruit, for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now here's a question for you to consider. What was the chief sin here? At its core, no pun intended, it was not really about fruit. Adam and Eve's chief sin was assuming for themselves the right to define right and wrong for themselves. The chief sin was assuming that they had the authority to define right and wrong for themselves. Now, as we talked about last week, because God is God and we are not, because God is the author of existence and the one who's encoded meaning and purpose into the cosmos and into our very DNA. To live aligned with reality is to recognize and to accept that we do not have the authority or truthfully the wisdom, the perspective to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong, what is true and good, what is pure and beautiful. To assume this authority for ourselves is ultimately rebellion, it's sedition, and it leads to our own destruction. Now, there are moments in time, usually in retrospect, when discerning good and evil is just really, really easy to do. Uh, two years ago, uh, the director, Terrence Malick, released a film called A Hidden Life. 
And in the film, he told the true story of a Catholic Christian in Austria at the time that the Nazis were taking control. And in the film, uh, the main character, Franz, refused to abide by Nazism, while all of the other Christians in his village just readily seemed to accept it and to embrace it. Even the priests, the leaders of their church, were just capitulating to Nazism without any objection. But Franz Jägerstadter resisted at great cost. In a conversation that, Fr that Franz was having with an artist in his village who had painted scenes from the Bible, Franz asked why so many stood by their faith, or so few had stood by their faith, and so few had stood up to the Nazis. And the artist who had painted these scenes from the Bible lamented that even his contribution didn't seem to help. His paintings had comforted believers but didn't actually lead to their, their repentance and their conversion. And he said this chilling line. He said, uh, we create admirers. We do not create followers. An admirer of Jesus is a person who likes him. They might even say they believe in Jesus, but they also like to retain control over their life. The, for an admirer, their ultimate goal in life is to be happy and to remove obstacles and hindrances to happiness. And their faith is ultimately used as a tool just to cope and manage their anxieties and the things that bar them from happiness. While they're interested in what God's Word might say about how to navigate life, the role that the Word plays in their life is merely as a consultant. Obedience is regarded as being purely optional. Admirers of Jesus may affirm that he is the way and the truth and the life, but their behavior demonstrates that they're going their own way, defining their own truth and dictating the terms of their own life. This way of living is what the world controller in Aldous Huxley's brave new world called Christianity without tears. And it's ultimately Christianity without a cross. True followers, on the other hand, by contrast, aspire to live in the truth uh, in every aspect of their lives. To live in truth, to know the truth, is the chief object of his or her life. And in resolving to follow Jesus and to live in the truth, they have released outcomes and regard the difficulties of life as tools in the hands of God to shape them into people of holiness and wisdom. And while joy is routinely a hallmark characteristic of true followers of Jesus, they don't chase happiness as an end in itself. Followers know that the way of Jesus has always been out of step with popular culture. And they embrace, though they certainly don't chase, ridicule and being misunderstood as a part of the cost of following Jesus. Now, followers are not superhumans but they're experiencing by the Spirit and in community what it means to live according to their redeemed nature. Bit by bit, in a progressive kind of sense, they're learning what it means to be transformed into living according to this renewed and redeemed nature. As I draw, and I'm speaking in, in you know, blankets, we're, com we're complex human beings, but as I, as I think about this, uh, the question comes to mind for me, what kind of church do we need to be together 
to produce the kind of people that are actually followers of Jesus and not merely admirers of Jesus. As I take stock of my own life and as I think about our church, I admit that there's some fears that come to mind for me. I confess that I fear that we're, we're more often a church of admirers, guided more than anything by our politics than simple obedience to the call and the commands of Jesus. Many of us, I fear, are merely attaching Jesus to woke liberalism. And many others of us at the same time are merely attaching him to idolatrous conservatism, and both groups think they're in the right. Let me ask you this question. What are three things that you believe as a follower of Jesus that are out of line with or would be found to be offensive or objectionable to your political party of choice? What are three things you believe as a follower of Jesus that are different or objectionable to your political party of choice? Now, if, if after thinking this through for a while, you can't think of three things, it may well be that your politics and not the way of Jesus is what's really shaping and forming you. To live according to the truth, and the wisdom of God revealed and defined by the person of Jesus Christ must be the highest ambition of our lives if our desire is to go down the ancient path. And to take up Christ's invitation to pilgrimage down the ancient path requires us to renounce and relinquish the right to attempt to define right and wrong, wisdom and folly, falsehood and truth for ourselves. Uh, someone I know started leading worship at a, a, another church, and they inherited this team of singers who were there before he came. And one of the singers had a really big voice, but the voice was also really, really off, like so off that it hurts your bones to hear it. And when he finally and kindly confronted uh, this singer about being tone deaf and advised her to get voice lessons, she responded, could it be that everyone else is off and I'm the only one that's actually on? And he just groaned internally. In the same way this woman was tone deaf, there are many people who have be become truth deaf who experience a diminished capacity to recognize truth and goodness and wisdom because uh, they've given too many other sources the authority to shape our moral compass. Uh, my, my imagination right now goes to this bit in the Lord of the Rings books that I'm reading with my children right now. And uh, this, this creepy character, Gollum, is offered, have I said this in a sermon before? I truthfully don't remember. And I didn't plan it in my notes either. Uh, Gollum is offered this like really pure bread that was made by the elves and he takes a bite of it and it is objectionable and disgusting to him. But the thing in reality is virtuous and wholesome and so good. He was warped and depraved and so he couldn't recognize what was best for him even when it was offered. It choked him. I have a handful of friends uh, right now who are doing, for a variety of reasons, with the help of doctors, elimination diets as a way of identifying foods that adversely affect their physical bodies. One of the most helpful things that many of us could do in beginning to go down the ancient path is to try out a kind of spiritual elimination 
diet. In fact, I want to issue a challenge. Uh, the month of February this year has 28 days. And for the month of February, which actually starts tomorrow, I dare you to eliminate from your life any and all cable news or talk radio or partisan political podcasts and all social media for the month of February. And every day to replace those habits, I want to urge you to read two or three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is 28 chapters. So if you read two or three chapters a day, you're going to read the Gospel of Matthew all the way through two times or three times. Uh, if you do that, reading two times, three times a day, eliminating some of these other distractions and read and, and like journal through, pray through the things that you're reading, I think something like this is going to give you a tremendous spiritual cleanse and reset. For many of you, getting rid of, rid of talk radio or cable news alone is going to lower your blood pressure and your doctor is going to thank you. I think it would also give you a sense of, of how undernourished you've been and I've been spiritually and also how over-inundated you've been with angry, anxious noise and the news and social media. But here's the thing. Many of us could do that and it would still have limited effect on us. Well, why is that? It's because we're still operating from the posture of an admirer who retains the right to dictate terms. And if we have any hopes to advance down the ancient path, this must be confronted. Adam and Eve's first sin was usurping God, attempting to, by taking for themselves the responsibility of defining right and wrong. And many folks have sat in pews for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and they are no more wise or mature in their faith because all along they've been, they've been coming to church, they've been participating in community as a mere admirer of Jesus. Uh, like taking his advice from time to time when it feels good, but otherwise dictating the terms of life. And we will not grow as long as this is the case. Because God is God and we are not. Because God alone is the person who has the wisdom, the perspective, the authority being the author of our existence. Like we just have to renounce that is beyond us and it invites this position of submission of us. When we learn or God gives us the grace to see that we're clinging to control and defining right and wrong for ourselves, I think there are four invitations that the Holy Spirit might offer to us. The first is, is very standard, and it's simply to repent. When we acknowledge that we've been mere admirers of Jesus, you may have been a Christian for 55 years or for five years, and you've only been giving Jesus this consulting role in your life, and, and, and you become aware of it. There's an invitation to repent, which is to wholly and completely acknowledge it and just decide, I'm going to change course. You repent, you acknowledge the wrong, and you do differently. I think the second thing that invites of us is to renounce this kind of living. By renouncing it, we're saying, I no longer have the claim uh, to control my life. I'm no longer going to attempt to define right and wrong for myself, chiefly according to what makes me happiest. I renounce that role, and I give myself completely to God. I believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm going to let him uh, do the role for which he exists, to define right and wrong, true and good, pure and beautiful for me. 
when God gives us the grace to recognize that we've been an admirer and we want to take the step toward being a follower, we repent of our rebellion, of our control over life. We renounce authority that, that, that we can define right and wrong for ourselves. Third, we resolve to live in the truth. And there's such a tremendous power about naming this as your ambition, no matter the cost. I am going to live in God's way. I'm resolved to do this. But as soon as you begin a resolution, just like working out or staying on a good diet or, you know, remembering to call your mom or your grandma on Fridays, we all find how deeply we fail, which invites this fourth response of us, which is to request the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And again, we find ourselves as we consider like the lofty invitations and demands of God at this place where we're, if we're honest with ourselves, broken in spirit and like very sober minded about our ability to like live in alignment with God's word. Some of the commands of scripture feel impossible to obey. And they are apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and in part from the, the, the kind of church that is aspiring to produce true disciples and not mere admirers. And we find ourselves here at the mercy of God, asking him to help us out. This is why when we're worshiping together again, it's going to be so sweet to come forward and receive in our hands the, the body and the blood of Jesus as we receive Holy Communion, recognizing before God our empty-handedness, our, 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 bankrupt, our bankrupt souls, our, our, abil our inability to obey him in a way that honors him. So we come forward confessing our weakness and brokenness, and yet we also receive this gift that he offers us in Jesus, who even now at the right hand of the Father is pulling for you, is pulling for us, delighted to send the Spirit to empower us to live in the Jesus way as we renounce our claim of, of authority over our lives. And, and, and resolve to trust him completely. Now, I've been sensing more and more, and it feels like this is accelerating, that a sermon like this in the days to come is going to be viewed as something that is not just like uh, offensive or challenging, but actually dangerous. And I believe that in the days to come, many who right now are merely admirers of Jesus or cultural Christians are ultimately going to decide to give up the act. I believe that in the days to come, the cost of following Jesus, even in the city of Tulsa, is going to be much more acutely felt and experienced. And I also believe that as the cultural conditions become more hostile, the communities of people and the individuals who are resolved to be true followers of Jesus will experience the power and the presence and the joy of God like never before. Let's call each other to live in the strength of God and the power of God. Let's help one another, encourage one another, tell the truth to one another. Will you tell the truth to me and challenge and encourage me to not merely be an admirer, but a community of followers together. God help us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you know how limited our perspective is. You know how weak our will is. And yet you also know the condition of our heart and like if there's a seed of desire to be a person who really counts the cost and follows. I ask you that you would just pour out your Holy Spirit on that seed of desire in our hearts. Help us to want 
to want to be people who follow you no matter the cost. Pour out your spirit on the church of Jesus Christ, not just like the local church of Cornerstone, but wherever men and women gather in your name, would you pour out your spirit? Would you pour out your spirit on the church of Battle Creek? Would you pour out your spirit on John Knox Presbyterian? Would you pour out your spirit on Christ the King Catholic Church, on Woodlake Assembly of God? Would you send your spirit and prompt and motivate and empower men and women who say they love Jesus to live like it as a true follower no matter the cost? Jesus, we say we're, we're tired and we're exhausted. There are many stressors and things grabbing for our attention, and most of us are just doing the best we can. We're living according to our first nature. Would you bear your arm and show your strength and help us to live according to our redeemed nature together? And Lord, as we do this, would you bring many more men and women to come to honor and love you as their Lord? We trust you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, have a great week. God loves you. We'll see you around.